Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 19. We'll be starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethage and to Bethany at the mount of that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you. Where you are entering, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the ground. As he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that made for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. As you've already realized, we are taking a bit of a break from Philippians, and in these next two weeks, we're going to move into Palm Sunday and Easter in different texts, but we really are not going to fully leave Philippians. In fact, even this morning, I want to tie what we've read here this morning back to what I've said the last couple of weeks from Philippians chapter 3, and that was centered around the whole idea that Paul said We are the real circumcision. We are the real circumcision. There was no uh, ambiguity in what Paul said. He was saying, we are right and they are wrong. That's the way he said it. He didn't pull any punches about it. He was coming against the heirs that were coming in upon the Philippians. We are the real circumcision who glory in Christ Jesus and take and put no confidence in the flesh. That's how he qualified it. I said then, I say it again this morning, the reason Paul could do that is because he's centered in the gospel. And there is in the air, as I've said, the danger that people can be disillusioned because there's so many shingles over so many church doors today that have different names on them. And you think, how in the world can I know which one is right? How can I know this is what my parents brought me up in maybe or this is where I landed when I moved or whatever. And we say, how can we know? I want to say to you this morning, no church has it all right. None. There's no perfect church, us included. No one. Nobody gets all of the points on the periphery correct. And we'll figure that out one day, probably if it matters at all then. But there are some things I say to you that you can know. And it needs to center around what Paul said. We glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. That's what Paul said. We are the real circumcision. That's where he centered, in the gospel. And so it is important, and you can know the gospel. 
And you must know the gospel and you need to live by the gospel. And what Satan would like you to do is believe you can't know. So the very power to live out the Christian life is ripped away from you. And I want to say again this morning, there is a center that we can center in and know. And I hope that you will just ask God to show you, give you eyes to see. I meant to share last week and close with an illustration that I didn't have enough time to close with. And so I want to tag it on here as an illustration of what I mean when it talks about glorying in Christ Jesus. And that is a story, really an illustration of of my own life. Back in 1973 is when I first um, began to have my eyes open to see Christ and to see that I could glory in Him and put no confidence in the flesh. At the same time, a friend of mine named Paul, who was in the same class as I was, we were acquainted with one another, but we really didn't know each other very well. He was the mayor's son in that particular town, and I knew Paul, and he was, he was a gracious kid that even though he was the mayor's son, he was a friendly guy and had been a friend, but really just an acquaintance. But what happened is the same thing in Paul's life that happened in my life. God began to help him to see some things. Our lives were much different. Uh, He grew up on one side of the tracks, really, kind of, and I grew up on the other. The other part of our lives that was much different is that Paul grew up in the church. In fact, he even went to a parochial school from K through 6. I didn't grow up in the church. I had very little church background. I remember a couple times being in church because I think that's the only time I ever was in church. You know how you remember things? Because it's the only time it happened. I've come to the conclusion that's why I remember them. Paul stayed around. He married a high school gal that had been in our class a few years after we graduated from high school and uh, attended her church. In fact, attends her church today. Paul stayed and ran his father's business that had been there. And I went off into vocational ministry. And occasionally, occasionally, over the years, we have had a chance to sit down together. Because what happened is both of us in 1973 had our eyes open to see, to begin to see the glory of Christ. And our lives were dramatically changed. The direction of our lives was dramatically changed at that point. The trajectory went much different directions than it would have had that event not occurred. And, and he worships in one shingle and I worship under another shingle. But whenever we get together, which is very rare, really, in fact, much more rare since my father passed away, I don't get back to my hometown. That's what happens when your parents are gone. You don't go back. But any time we have gotten together, a handful of times, or any time in the future that God may allow us to get together, I'm confident that we'll spend a little bit of time in chit-chat. We'll catch up a little bit on our families and on our kids. But I know before that conversation is over that it will center back on Christ. We will finish that conversation by glorying in Christ. Don't worship. Same traditions went different directions, grew up in different families. But the center is Christ. We glory in Christ. Christ did something in our lives by the power of the gospel that always brings us back to that. I use that illustration to say to young people, it's those kinds of things. Get get those kinds of relationships. Begin to see. I I thought of Daryl this morning. I thought as he sang that song about change and how his life has been changed... There were probably seven or eight years ago, Daryl and Rhonda came when we were in the old sanctuary. They came to visit one Sunday morning. 
And I remember them visiting with their family there. And I remember following that visit, I remember calling Rhonda on the phone and saying, Rhonda, can I stop by for a visit? Now, Rhonda was reading her husband a bit and I could read her a bit and I knew that probably wasn't going to happen. There was a bit, you, you just get that feel sometimes as a pastor, and usually you read it right, and I read it right that day. There, you know, it wasn't the best timing for that. And I'm convinced, had we gotten together, we wouldn't have gloried in Christ. We wouldn't have talked about Christ much. Maybe a little, but probably not much. But I know now, when I get together with Daryl, when we talked about the worship service this morning, when we talk about those things, it's different. We glory in Christ. We glory in Christ. You see, this does have a center. There is a truth to be known. Will you get it all right? No. Does it have to do with glorying in Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh? Yes. Wherever there's a shingle, wherever you go in life that does those two things, you'll be pretty safe. You'll be pretty safe. So I... I say that to you. Don't buy. Don't buy the lie. It is a lie. It is a deception that you can't know anything. That's not what Paul said. He said we are the real circumcision because he centered it there. He centered it in Christ. Now, today's text, how does all that apply to today? I think it does. I think it has great application to that. So I ask you now to turn to Luke chapter 19, and we want to talk about this. The text today goes back to that same fundamental issue. It is about getting the core right. That's what I want you to see in this text, in in the triumphal entry of Christ. There's a, a phrase right at the end of what Pastor Jason read this morning in verse 44, and I want you to look at that there at the very end of that particular passage, verse 44. There's some wording at the end, and it says uh, this, Uh, Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem as he comes in. He's weeping. Broken. And it goes to the heart here where it says, because they did not know the time of their visitation. What does that mean? Now, visitation, that word, if you find it other places in Scripture... It can mean two things. So he could have meant you didn't know about your judgment. That's what it can mean sometimes. Visitation means the judgment of God being visited upon a people. Or other times it can mean the salvation of God being visited on a people. It can mean those two things, either judgment or salvation. So then we ask, what does it mean in this text? What what didn't they know? What didn't they know about the time of your visitation? How do we discern? Does it mean judgment? Does it mean salvation? You see, what you do is you find that word another place. And you find it two more places. The same wording, two more places in Luke. You find it, first of all, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 68. If you turn there, it's the story of Zechariah and John the Baptist. And there in Luke chapter 1, and if you have your Bibles open, it's just as easy to turn to that. Luke chapter 1, let me read it to you in verse 68. It says, In in Zechariah's prophecy, it says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So there's that word, visited again, but it is in the context of salvation, not judgment, but in redeeming his people. And then if you turn over to Luke chapter 7, you find it another place where it occurs in verse 16 of this particular uh, passage here. 
And in Luke chapter 7 and verse 16, it says this. It's in the context of Jesus raising the widow's son at name. And he raised the widow's son, and it says this. A great prophet has arisen among us, the people said. God has visited his people. With what? Judgment? No. He raised with salvation. The context there is salvation. So in both of those cases, it has to do with salvation. So the inference we would take then in Luke here is that when he talks about it in Luke chapter 19, the theme of Luke is the visitation that is the salvation of God that's come. And so when he says they did not know the time of, of your visitation or his visitation, they didn't know the day of salvation that had come. They didn't see it in Christ. They really didn't understand it and all that it meant as Christ came. The fundamental problem here is blindness. It's talked about in this passage. Look up in verse 42. It says, would, you, would that you, even you, had known on this day, what day? The day of visitation, the things that make for peace. But it says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The fundamental problem for all people is blindness. One, at one time, you were blind to God's visitation. I hope this morning that the vast majority of us are no longer blind to that. My assumption, the vast majority are no longer blind. But at one time, everyone was blind. Everyone. And, and salvation is lots of things, but fundamentally, it's about seeing. It's about seeing the visitation of God in Christ. And all that that means, and putting your hope in that, and God bringing us to life in Christ. That is what the visitation was talked about, that God was coming and wanting to bring life, but the people were blind. And the fundamental problem of all people is that we're blind. And Satan would like to keep you blind if you're blind here this morning. He'd like you to stay in that state of blindness. And if you've come to sight, he'd like to just blur that sight even. And the way he does it, I think, was with that whole idea of the last couple of weeks with disillusionment. How can anybody know? If he can sell that bill of goods, if he can sell it, then he keeps people blind who never come to sight or people who come to sight just stay so it's kind of foggy. But I say to you today, the reason that Jesus came was to bring upon the people a peace, was to bring something, to bring salvation to the people. That's what this is all about. And that's what was fundamentally misunderstood because he said they don't know the things that make for peace. They don't know the things that make for peace. Christianity is fundamentally at the core about the gospel. It's about how God made a way for sinful people to come into the presence of a holy God and live with him forever. It, in essence, is how God saved us from God. You want to put it that way? God saved us from God. He saved us from Himself. That's what Romans 8 is all about. If, if God saved us from Himself, who will bring any condemnation against us? That's ultimately what, what Christianity is about. It is about Christ and putting no confidence in the flesh and finding our hope fully there. And you can know that. That doesn't have to be a wonder, wonder kind of thing. No matter how many shingles that there are over how many doors. Paul said we are the real circumcision. Now, this is the way it goes in our world today. This is, this is what's being raised up as the mantra in, in many places today. That Jesus 
is our example, but not our Savior. Now, in, in, in extreme cases of that, it's extreme. But you get all kinds of versions all the way along. That He's our example, but you don't hear much about Him being our Savior. That is not what Paul believed. We are the real circumcision. And then he told about glorying in Christ. Fundamentally, Christianity is about peace being made between us and God. And that peace rests in the one who has visited salvation in Christ. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that you can't know. Don't buy the lie that Jesus was just some example that we follow. Fundamentally, you, you can't follow him with any kind of credibility if all he is an example because Jesus didn't say, I'm just an example. Jesus said, I bring peace. Jesus said, they didn't understand my visitation, which was to bring salvation. I, I get so frustrated in our world today when people want to call all kinds of things Christianity. You can, you can believe what you want to believe. People are free to believe what they are free to believe. And, and I can try to persuade uh, and I can try to bring them back and all of that, but they're free to do that. The frustration for me is then when we put the label of Christianity over some things that are not Christianity, not what Christ taught. If Christ was only an example, he was a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis would say. But he was not Lord because he taught that he was a Savior. He taught that he came to bring peace. He taught that we need to put our hope in him. We need to glory in him and put no confidence in the flesh. Christianity is fundamentally about knowing that. Knowing that the relationship between us and God has been restored. We must know that. Only if he's first Savior can he be an example. You can't have it the other way around. Christianity is about sin and it is about a Savior. And all of that comes back now to seeing. To seeing who he is. And to seeing his glory. And what I want to do this morning is I want, I want to just talk about that a minute. I want to talk about the glorious Savior who's come to visit us. Who wants us to see him for who he is that we might glory in him and put all our confidence in him. First of all, that Savior who, uh, who we see and who has come was first of all a Savior that was, was moved deeply. The Savior that we're talking about, the one who's come to save us from our sin, the one who's come to bring peace, was one who was tenderly moved. It says, as he went and he drew toward the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He was moved. He was moved by the people. He's a tender Savior. A tender Savior who's moved. Secondly, the scripture says that he is a self-denying Savior. He came, and here he came and could have been crowned king. I mean, they, he could have set up a kingdom right here. He could, have, he could have gone around the cross, except he knew he couldn't go around the cross. Jesus knew that he needed to be resolute. He knew he needed to deny himself in the short run for the long run. And he did. He wasn't fickle as the crowds were fickle. 
He wasn't full of self-pity, as I said at the beginning, like we are full of self-pity at times. Can you imagine that? You riding into Jerusalem and these people waving the palm branches and all the time you know that in a week or just a few days they'll be crying, crucify you, crucify you. Jesus knew that. But he went anyway. He wasn't full of self-pity. But he denied himself and he came and he went to the cross. He laid down his glory, at least the right to rest on his glory. I don't think he ever was not God. I don't think there's any sense in which Jesus laid down his deity. He was never not God. But he laid down his, his uh, right to call upon his glory, to call upon his deity. He lived, as I said last week, as we are to live, in the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. One of the amazing things about what Jesus has called us to live this life of faith dependent upon his grace. He was, he was in that sense our example. He did it the way we're to do it. He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit. He laid down his glory. The, the scripture, as I said, would make no sense that he was tempted in every way without sin. If somehow he could pull his deity out of his hip pocket whenever he wanted to. It wouldn't be the same. But he didn't. He denied his right, his, his right for us. And thirdly, the scripture says that he had intentionality about helping. He had an intentionality about helping. There's an amazing thing that happens sometimes. Sometimes we can be moved and sometimes we can be self-denying just to a degree. But we never get to really doing anything about it. We never get to the intentionality of following through. Jesus followed all the way through. Not only was he moved, but he was moved all the way to finish the work on the cross. Now, there's, there's something that I want us to see here, and then we're going to close with this this morning. Look back up in that passage. It says, When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace? What did he mean by that, had known the things that make for peace? One of the things, again, that helps us is to find that wording, that exact word in, in the original languages where it appears again in Scripture, where Jesus used that same word, being known. Would that you have known the things that make for peace. And the where we find that, turn with me if you have your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And let me read another place where that same wording occurs. And we get the inference of what Jesus was declaring there in that verse. In verse 44 of chapter 7, he says this. This is a... uh, an amazing passage of Scripture. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Now, the reason I take that passage is not for us to unpack that passage, but to unpack what he means, I never knew you. What, what does that mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, I never knew you? Now, certainly, he, he knew them. 
he knew them in the sense of uh, of who they were. He he was God. As I said, he never laid a, aside his deity in the sense that he was always God. And one of the attributes of God is he's, he knows. So what does he mean? I never knew you. I never knew you. I think what he means, I think the way you can translate that, which helps us when we go over here, it means I never approved of you. That's what it means. I never knew you. I never approved of you. You did all these things, but I never approved of you. So if you take that wording over here now and to chapter 19, we get this. And when he drew near to the city and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known. Insert this. Would that you had approved of the things that make for peace. In other words, you've, you've staked your life on the things that make for peace. You've put your hope in the things that make for peace. You've said that those things are right and I cast myself there. You see, they didn't do that. He, the one who made for peace was Christ himself. And what he's saying is, you have not acknowledged that. You've not acknowledged that my reason for coming was to bring peace between you and God. You've got other intentions for me and other desires for me and other things you'd like me to do and like me to see me be. And he comes back and says, what I am is a savior. And you won't acknowledge that. You won't acknowledge my visitation. You won't say that is why I came. You see fundamentally Christianity is about that. Is about acknowledging his visitation. About acknowledging the fact that he's come. And by acknowledging it is casting your hope on it. Trusting it to hold you. Trusting it to save you. That's what Christianity is, seeing that, seeing that we can cast ourselves on Him. And that's what the people here didn't do. They didn't acknowledge it. They didn't acknowledge it as right. Christianity is about that. It's about glorying in Christ Jesus, acknowledging that He, in fact, is the Savior, putting no confidence in the flesh, casting ourselves fully on Him. And then, and then, living out the life of faith. For be it, following His example, walking in His steps. There is a place for that, but not before the acknowledgement. Not before acknowledging who He is. Christianity is fundamentally about glorying in Christ Jesus. And then the outgrowth of that is we become like Him. He makes us like Him. We begin to have a heart like Him. And it leads to things like being willing to be broken for our world. Being broken like He was broken. Weeping for those of our world and the brokenness of our world. Think for a minute in your own life. How many people have you wept for? Now I understand we all have emotional makeups that are different. But how many have you heart really been broken for? You see, to follow Christ, to have Him as our Savior means that we weep for our world. And then it goes on to the, the step of denying. What kinds of things do you deny yourself for the sake of Christ? What kind of comforts and other things like that do we deny for the sake of Christ? 
One person has put it this way. Do we deny ourselves the comforts, securities, and ease of avoiding pain? Do we deny ourselves those? Do we, do we run around those? Jesus didn't. He embraced them. You see, we see His glory. We see the gloriousness of what He did for us. And so our hearts are broken like His. Our hearts are willing to deny ourselves like His. And then finally, we intentionally launch out into our world to take the message of His visitation to them. Last week we talked about it in seeing and in savoring and in proclaiming. Is that where we live in our lives? Do we, do we live out that example of Christ? Not merely as an example, but because He's our Savior. Because we have seen that the time of His visitation has come. I pray that that's the kind of people we are. I pray that we're moved toward others. We're moved toward others so that they too might glory in this Christ and look away from their confidence in the flesh to Him and come to life in Him. There's a commercial or something that I picked up. I think it, I think it was a commercial. The Almost Syndrome. Did you, did you see that? I haven't seen it lately. But it's in some kind of a fundraising avenue where, where they talk about you were almost moved to do something. You were almost or you almost did it. In other words, the compassion was raised. You may have denied yourself a little, but you really just didn't fully walk through it. I think, I think sometimes in the church we can live there. We can get moved emotionally and, and start down that road of self-denial, but when it gets hard, we just kind of pull back. And we glory in the fact that we were moved emotionally, but we never get to any intentional moving toward. Jesus Jesus went all the way. And in that sense, He is our example, but He's first our Savior. It doesn't do us any good to go out and live an example if we have no Savior to lift up to them. The greatest need of all people is a Savior. The greatest need of all people is to come to glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. To see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let's stand together. The worship team, they're going to come back this morning and we're going to, we're going to sing again that song. O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. I pray that as we sing it, even in that, we'll, we'll really hear what it says because it talks about in that at one point having no eyes to see. God has given you eyes to see. I pray that it's moved you to compassion. You've seen Christ. And now we present that to the world. Help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace as I move out intentionally into the lives of people. Let's sing together and then we'll pray.
progression is to see the treasure of Christ, to savor that treasure, but then to proclaim it. And I think the way we proclaim it is as we move out into it in self-denial, as we're willing to give our lives away for the brokenness of our world, that we take the gospel to them in tangible ways, in connecting ways. God, help us to be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you this morning that that Paul didn't pull any punches. But he said we're the real circumcision. We who glory in Christ put no confidence in the flesh. Help us, Lord, to see that and to savor that and cause it to cause us to proclaim. To be more than almost Christians but Lord, to move all the way into intentionally moving into the lives of others. Lord, help us. There's a broken, needy world around us. We pray you'll give us strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Bless you. You're dismissed.